What happens to us when we die? This may not seem like that important of a question on a day like today when many of us are alive and well, but it is a question of paramount importance for every one of us because we cannot keep deluding ourselves of our inevitable mortality. It's coming. We're all going to die. So is there an afterlife? Will we live on once we die? Or, in the other hand, will we simply cease to exist? Most of our culture, our naturalistic, secular, humanistic culture, most believe that this life is all there is. That our destiny is to live and then die. And that's all, folks. The philosopher Ernest Nagel says this, that human destiny is only an episode between two oblivions. The oblivions referring to birth and death. That's all that human destiny is. This life is all there is. Or is it? The Bible tells a vastly different story. A story of life, and death, and then life again. That every person will live again after death to experience either eternal life or eternal death. And this this life certainly does matter. The Bible is very clear. This life matters. But on a much greater scale, so does the life to come. And since death will come to us all, not much is more applicable or relevant or significant to us than the question of whether or not there will be a resurrection. Rising again from death to life, will there be a resurrection? But doubting the resurrection, the reality of an afterlife resurrection, is nothing new. The same was going on in Jesus' day. And he had to deal with issues like these. We're going to see this as we turn together to Luke chapter 20 today. So you can take your Bibles and you can turn there with me now. Luke 20 will be in verse 27 as we start. If you're using a pew Bible from the pews in front of you, it will be on page 880. 880 will lead you to Luke chapter 20. This true-to-life story will show us that not only is our future resurrection real, but that this reality should radically change our lives, even long before we actually die. This should impact us now, today. Okay? Let's pray together, though, that we will see these truths, believe them, and then be changed by them. Would you please pray with me? Heavenly Father, as we look into your word, I pray that you would bring conviction that you would bring repentance, that you would bring encouragement, that we would uh, be blown away by your love for us once again today, your grace. We thank you for what you're doing in our lives. I pray that your spirit would continue to change us this morning through the power of your word. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. I was away for two weeks, and you may not have been with us lately, so let's Catch us all up a bit, okay? Luke chapter 20. This point in Jesus' life, he's reached his long-awaited destination of Jerusalem, where he would be arrested and tried and crucified, and then would rise again from the dead in the very immediate future. And everything in his life, we've seen throughout Luke, everything was leading up to this, leading up to these moments. And after entering Jerusalem with a parade and pomp and circumstance and people praising him as king, Jesus went straight to the temple where he caused this huge ruckus, got everyone angry at him, and then he started teaching daily from the temple. And as he taught, what we've seen is the religious leaders of the day, they seized the opportunity to confront him. As he taught. And chapter 20 is chock full of controversy after controversy as Jesus and the leaders go back and forth. But inevitably we saw Jesus just keeps coming out on top. 
And the latest example of this was when the leader spies asked Jesus about politics and religion. Should we pay these taxes to Caesar? And then we saw Jesus give his famous statement in verse 25. Jesus said to them, Then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And then verse 26 concludes, And they were not able in the presence of the people to catch him in what he said, but marveling at his answer, they became silent. Things are probably pretty tense in this moment. Hostile, maybe a bit awkward. But Jesus' enemies couldn't help but just marvel and be amazed at how he kept evading their traps, at his wisdom and his authority. However, there was still one group that wanted to have a go at Jesus. One left, it seems. One group that wanted to grind an axe with him. And this group was the Sadducees. Now, this is the only time that this group appears in Luke. So who were the Sadducees? You see down in verse 27, we're going to see Luke introduce them. This is actually the only time in the book of Luke that this group appears. So who were they? Who were the Sadducees? Well, they were a kind of... They were a group of people that were united by common ideologies and beliefs. They, weren't, they didn't have a specific job. They kind of crossed over a bunch of different occupations and, and fields. So maybe you could think of like a political party or a church denomination or like-minded theologians, okay? just a group of people that were united over something like that. They were wealthy generally. They were a ruling elite. They were well represented as priests and in the government. And theologically... They were the skeptics of the day, the naturalists, the deists. And the thing that really set the Sadducees apart from everyone else was what they didn't believe in. Okay? They didn't believe in an afterlife or a resurrection or angels or the immortality of the soul or really pretty much anything supernatural outside of God himself. Okay? That was what they believed. In other words, they were very much like many people in our world today, including even many who claim to be Christians, maybe including you. In in verse 27, Luke introduces them this way. He says, There came to Jesus some Sadducees, those who deny that there is a resurrection. See, that's what they're known for. They deny that there's a resurrection. Now, just to be clear, this is not referring to the resurrection of Jesus here. Okay, that hadn't happened yet. But, and usually today when we say the resurrection, we might mean the resurrection of Jesus. Just shorthand, we, we use it to talk about that. But the resurrection that the Sadducees didn't believe in was the resurrection of the dead. Which we believe is a still future event yet to happen once Jesus returns that all the dead will come back to life in order to be judged by God. Okay, this is a future event, the, de- the resurrection of the dead. And they didn't believe it. Now, given the Sadducees' beliefs, it's fairly obvious why they'd be so opposed to Jesus. Besides the fact that they probably, like the other leaders, resented his rising popularity. But Jesus was as supernatural a person as they come. Right? He had performed hundreds of miracles. Even, including, even raising some people from the dead, supposedly. Okay, so Jesus, if he was true and he was legit, he was a walking jeopardization of all that the Sadducees stood for and believed. Also, Jesus had already taken a a firm stance on there being a resurrection of the dead. That he believed that it would come. In John 5, Jesus said this, Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Jesus clearly endorses the resurrection as a reality here. It's not wishful thinking. It's not some whimsical hope that people were hoping in. So, with slightly different motives, but the same goal, the Sadducees joined in this procession of 
slighted religious leaders attempting to trap the Lord who knew everything. Good luck. They started here by reminding Jesus about a law straight from the mouth of Moses. Okay, it's verse 27 again. There came to him some Sadducees, those who deny that there is a resurrection. And they asked him a question saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies, having a wife but no children, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now this, in fact, was a law from the Mosaic Law found in Deuteronomy 25. And Moses had said this, If brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead men shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as his wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And the first son whom she bears shall succeed to the name of his dead brother, that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. Now this came to be known as Leverite marriage. And it was meant to ensure that almost everyone would have an heir, even if they died childless. That was the whole goal of the law. Now, it sounds rather foreign and strange to us. I doubt that a law like this would fly in Canada. <laughs> but in a culture where the carrying on of a name and heritage meant everything, this law was very meaningful. And there were very good reasons for it. You can actually read a beautiful example of this law in practice in the book of Ruth in the Old Testament. But based on this law, the Sadducees then told Jesus a hypothetical story, which they thought disproved the doctrine of the resurrection of the dead. Look what they say. So they give the law, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies, having a wife but no children, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now, there were seven brothers. The first took a wife and died without children. And the second... And the third took her, and likewise all seven left no children and died. Afterward, the woman also died. (laughs) Could call this woman unlucky, right? (laughs) What a calamity of a tale. You get what happened? Okay, there's this oldest brother of this family of seven brothers, and he got married to this woman, but then he died before they had any kids. So the second brother did what was his lawful duty. He married his widowed sister-in-law and tried to have kids with her, but then he also died. So the third brother steps up to the plate, and so on and so forth, all the way down the line. Now... I hate it when people talk about marriage as the end of your life or the free or your freedom as you know it. Have you seen the pictures of like a wedding day, a groom and bride are kneeling at the altar, and as they're kneeling, there are the pictures from behind, and you can see clearly written on the groom's shoes, "Help me." <laughs> I mean, jokes like that can be a bit amusing. But they're also, I think, insulting to marriage as a whole. Because marriage is a beautiful thing designed by God. It's not the end of your life. But I laugh because for these guys, in this story, it literally was. (laughs) You get married, you die. (laughs) If I were the sixth or seventh brother in line here, I'd be terrified of marrying this woman. (laughs) And I'm not superstitious. It's just crazy. But anyway, that's all besides the point. In this made-up story, no one bailed on their duty. Okay, They all did what was required of them. Each brother took their the widow as their wife, and they attempted to have a child. But eventually, the woman ran out of brother-in-laws. <laughs> and then she, too, kicked the bucket. Tragedy. Now... This was an unbelievably far-fetched story. This never happened, and this never would have happened. But this is the type of nonsense that people come up with in hypothetical situations. The Sadducees, what they were trying to do with the story, 
They were trying to expose a logical inconsistency with the resurrection. They thought they had found a hole in the pro-resurrection argument. In fancy Latin terms, this was a reductio ad absurdum. Okay? An argument that tries to disprove something by taking it to its logical conclusion all the way, and it seems ridiculous. So they thought if they could just disprove one thing in this whole argument, that it would make the whole argument unravel. So that's what they were trying to do. The Sadducees then, with that as the frame of reference, they asked their question, which they thought was a stumper. Okay, Verse 32, afterward, the woman also died. Therefore... Verse 33, in the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will the woman be? For the seven had her as wife. Daryl Bach summarizes the dilemma they were presenting to Jesus. He says, imagine the dilemma when this monogamous wife is faced with seven resurrected spouses. What's going to happen then? It doesn't even make sense. The picture doesn't make sense to us. You've heard of the movie called Seven Brides for Seven Brothers? This is one bride for seven brothers. In the Sadducees, that's absurd. That just doesn't make sense. They must have been smiling and nodding and nudging each other, thinking they had Jesus stumped. Jesus must have just been rolling his eyes, though. <laughs> Sighing. He answers them in verse 34. It says this. And Jesus said to them, The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage. But those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage, for they cannot die anymore. Because they are equal to angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. Now we're going to dive into this in depth in a minute. But while they, the Sadducees thought they had found a flaw in Jesus' logic, instead Jesus pointed out a flaw in theirs. And the question that was meant to show the absurdity of the resurrection became absurd itself. The story is just ridiculous. Do you get what Jesus was saying here? The Sadducees' whole argument rested on a false assumption. They assumed that a future post-resurrection life would be very similar to this present life. Okay, They assumed that nothing would change, that many things would be the same, including all of our earthly relationships. This is what they were assuming. But Jesus countered by saying that a future life would actually be very different from this life. In short, people get married now, but they won't be married then. Now, I live a very different life, a different lifestyle than as a husband and a father and a pastor than when I was, say, 18 or 20 years old. A very different life. When, in, that, in those days, I could stay up till odd hours of the night every night, sleep until noon, fill my days with social activities, do whatever I wanted with my schedule. But times change. Okay? Eras change. Priorities change. Schedules change. Everything changes in life. It's delusional to think that things will always stay the same. But the Sadducees assumed that things would always stay the same relationship-wise even after the monumental event of the resurrection of the dead. It's a different life altogether, and they thought it would just stay the same. And they were wrong. This reveals the first clear principle that we can see from Jesus' words in this passage, and that is this. Resurrection radically alters our reality. A resurrection radically alters our reality. We can't expect things to remain the same after a resurrection. They inevitably change. Resurrection radically alters or changes our reality. Verse 34 again. Jesus said to them, The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage. So in other words, this time that we live in now, this is the time and era for weddings. Everyone's getting married. But after the resurrection, things will change. That's Jesus' point. Verse 35, 
But those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection of the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage, for they cannot die anymore because they are equal to angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. In summary, this life is not exactly like the next. Resurrection changes everything. The Sadducees' dilemma ultimately was a doubting and denial of God's power. They doubted that God could actually transform reality through resurrection. They doubted that he would actually do this in his supernatural power. So let me make this personal. Do you believe that God has the ability and power to do this? Do you believe that God can raise the dead? Do you believe that he has raised the dead? That he will raise the dead? If not, what I would say to you today is that you need to wrestle with the evidence of Christ's own resurrection. That's pretty powerful proof. But if you do believe this, Know then that resurrection alters our reality. Things won't stay the same once death has gone, death is gone and new life has come. Okay, now I have to address something about these verses for a few minutes. Because many people, especially happily married people, find these verses bothersome. Right? They think, my Husband or my wife, ideally, my husband or my wife is my best friend. Our lives are intertwined. We've, we become one flesh like God intended. We love each other dearly. Is Jesus actually saying that these relationships will be completely dissolved in eternity? Is that what he's saying? And we're confused. I mean, if marriage is such a wonderful thing, then why won't it be in heaven? Why would God seem to tear asunder that what he joined together? If God loves us, why would he deprive us of our deepest relationships? These are questions we have. John Ortberg has said, in order to fill a church, you only need to teach on three subjects. Sex, the end times, And will there be sex in the end times? (laughs) Now, I know marriage is different than sex, but you get the point, right? So, let's talk about this. Ultimately, I think our fears are quite unfounded here, of what Jesus is actually saying. First of all, let me clarify something. Jesus never says here, or in the other passages that talk about this, Jesus never said that our relationships will end never says that. We read into it. He said that the institution or the establishment of marriage will end. Not our deep friendships, our deep relationships. We jump to conclusions and we assume that the relationships will simply end. Okay? Will my relationship with my current wife be deep and special in heaven? I believe it must be. No, I, I believe that it will even be deeper and more special than now. Randy Alcorn, who's written extensively on heaven, says this, I think those who are afraid, who say, my wife or my husband is my best friend, we're going to lose that relationship. I would say, no, not at all. We should expect those relationships with family to be special and continue forever. People with good marriages are each other's best friends. There's no reason to believe they won't still be best friends in heaven. Also, consider this. The amazing fact that our human relationships in eternity will no longer be tainted by sin. That's incredible. And Philip Ryken says, I find it helpful to remember how little, in comparison, I love my wife now. 
and how much more I will be able to love her in the coming age. It will be far better for her not to be married to me at all and yet to be perfectly loved. Be able to perfectly love people. Second point here. This is, gets to the heart of what Jesus is saying. The institution of marriage will end because it will have fulfilled its purposes. Let's think about this, okay? According to the Bible, what are the purposes of marriage? Why, do, why should we get married? I think the Bible gives three of them. Okay, first of all, companionship or unity or intimacy, you could say. But companionship, first purpose of marriage. Remember, back in the beginning, it is not good for man to be alone. It's not good. So, God created the perfect partner and perfect companion for man and woman. That's the purpose of marriage. Second purpose, procreation, reproduction, bearing children. Okay, This comes from the command, be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. Now, procreation was designed to keep the human race growing and, and to keep it from going, going extinct. Okay, Very simple reasons. And marriage was designed to give procreation an ideal, moral, loving context in which to happen. The third purpose we don't hear of until the New Testament, and that is reflecting Christ's love. Okay, Ephesians 5, 31 and 32 says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. This is talking about marriage. And the two shall become one flesh. And then he says, This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. So like a mirror, marriage was intended to reflect the sacrificial love of Christ to the world around us. So those are three purposes of marriage. Now think about it. Every one of these three purposes for marriage fulfills a temporary need. Temporary need. In eternity, do you think we'll be lacking for companionship? No way, Jose. We'll have deeper, more fulfilling, more satisfying, probably more numerous relationships than we've ever had. And more than anything, God himself will satisfy our need for companionship. We will never be alone or lonely again. And I feel that our family relationships now will probably help contribute to that. Of never being alone again. Secondly, will there be a need for procreation in heaven? No, there won't be. Why not? Because people won't die anymore. It's as simple as that. And we won't need to worry about keeping the human race sustainable or growing. This is what Jesus was talking about here. In verse 35, you see him say, Those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection of the dead, neither marry nor are given in marriage, for they cannot die anymore. Okay, that's one of the reasons that there will not be marriage, is there's no more need for procreation. Thirdly, Will there be a need for marriages to reflect Christ's love in eternity? Not anymore. Why not? Because Christ's love for the church is going to be extremely visible to everyone. Randy Alcorn says, he points out, the Bible does not teach that there will be no marriage in heaven. In fact, it makes clear that there will be marriage in heaven. What it says is that there will be one marriage between Christ and his bride, and we'll all be part of it. The one flesh marital union we know on earth is a signpost pointing to our relationship with Christ as our bridegroom. Once we reach the destination, the signpost becomes unnecessary. That one marriage, our marriage to Christ, will be so completely satisfying that even the most wonderful earthly marriage couldn't be as fulfilling. So, every good purpose for marriage is a temporary purpose which no longer exists in heaven. There's no need for it. Now, some of you may still wonder about the sexual side of things. I know that's probably top of all your minds. Whether that will continue 
We don't know for sure. But most scholars believe it probably won't continue. Not because it's dirty, but because like marriage, sex will also have fulfilled its purposes. They have temporary purposes. I love what C.S. Lewis says about this, though. He said, to imagine a young boy who thought the greatest pleasure in the world was eating chocolate. Okay? Greatest thing he could ever imagine is eating chocolate. And then one day, this little boy hears about sex. And he has, he's confused, and he asks, well, do people eat chocolate while they're having sex? Because while he heard that sex was a wonderful experience, in his mind, nothing could be better than eating chocolate. Then Lewis says this, On receiving the answer no, the boy might regard the absence of chocolates as the chief characteristic of sexuality. In vain would you tell him that the reason why lovers in their raptures don't bother about chocolates is that they have something better to think of. The boy knows chocolate. He does not know the positive thing that excludes it. We are in the same position. We know the sexual life. We do not know except in glimpses the other thing which in heaven will leave no room for it. Powerful picture. In other words, heaven will have far greater pleasures than we can imagine. We won't be missing out. Now, I think we often wonder these questions in the first place. We get worried about this, about marriage not being there, because we value marriage too highly. Yes, sometimes we don't value it enough, whether by divorce or adultery or pornography or other things, but other times we put marriage up on this pedestal. And we treat it as the be-all, end-all of life. That the ultimate goal in life that you should be pursuing is to get married. It's not. Okay, Marriage is a blessing. But it's not where we can find any kind of ultimate fulfillment. If you look for a future spouse or a current spouse to satisfy you, to fulfill your needs for all happiness, you will be disappointed. It sets us up for failure, sets us up for disappointment. And further, elevating marriage too high also alienates and hurts those among us who aren't married. Puts pressure on them. Marriage is a gift. Don't make it your God. And it so easily can become an idol. When talking about these topics, it's impossible to understate the importance and the value and the thrill that we will find in our marriage to Christ. Okay? Don't be creeped out by this, okay? Our marriage to Christ will not be some weird sexual just strange thing, okay? Besides, it's not I. We're not going to be personally married to Christ. We will be corporately, as the church, us married to Christ. Again, don't transpose your ideas of marriage in this life to marriage in that life. Again, things will be very different. Resurrection changes reality. Reality is going to be altered, okay? But we will only ever find true relational satisfaction and fulfillment in our relationship with our Lord. Our relationship with Jesus is going to be what eternity is all about. What heaven's all about. It will be awesome. Psalm 1611 says, You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand our pleasures forevermore. We can't even imagine. Jesus says here in Luke that we will be like the angels. It doesn't say we will be angels. We'll be like angels. Living only for God's glory. Devoted to worship and service of Him. Incapable of sinning anymore. Not feeling the need for marriage or other earthly desires, never dying, will be 
fully known as sons of God and sons of the resurrection like Jesus says here. Fully known. Fully loved. Fully saved. So the obvious question becomes, how then can we be sure to receive these joys and pleasures? How can we make sure we're on the right side of this resurrection that's going to happen? Verse 35 says, But those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection of the dead, neither marry nor are given a marriage. It obviously implies that some will be worthy and some won't be. So how can we attain to that age and attain to the resurrection of the dead? It kind of sounds a bit like our worthiness here is something we earn. But that's not true at all. In fact, the Greek word that Luke used here means to be counted worthy or made worthy. Those who are counted worthy to to attain to that resurrection. The fact is, we aren't worthy. We're all sinners. We've all fallen far short of God's glory. We are all unworthy. So what actually makes us worthy to be resurrected. Get this. It's faith in Christ's resurrection. This is where that other resurrection comes into play. Faith in Christ's resurrection. Philippians 3 says this, For Christ's sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may, here's the language again, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. In other words, Jesus' resurrection and our own resurrection are intrinsically intertwined. They have to go together. No gain we have, no works we do, no sufferings we go through can make us worthy. Nothing. Only Christ and the power of His resurrection can can raise us to life again. We can only attain because Christ already attained. A couple of days from this passage, Jesus would die, be resurrected by the end of the week, and with Christ's new life, everything changed. Reality was altered radically. So I ask. Have you been counted worthy by Jesus yet? It's not something you can do. Have you received his new life? If not, I urge you today to believe that he did die and rise again. Trust in his power and receive his life. If if you want to talk more or pray with somebody, I'd I'd love to do that with you. If you haven't been counted worthy, make sure you leave here today knowing that you will be resurrected to the resurrection of life. And if you're here and you consider yourself a believer already, you don't get off easy here. Because the truth is, resurrection alters our reality. Every resurrection. And if you've believed, you have already been spiritually raised from the dead. It's impossible to receive new life in Christ but live the same way as before. Absolutely impossible. You can't do it and if you think you are doing it, you're deluding yourself. Our sins must be left in the grave. Our desires must grow and develop towards heaven. Our lives must become oriented around Jesus. We must surrender all to Him. We cannot have an encounter with the living Christ and remain unchanged. 
So what needs to change in your life in order to better reflect the resurrection life of Christ in you? If we've been saved, we have new lives. It's glorious. It means things have to change. Some of us may wonder, however, how in the world do we know all this to be true? I mean, we might be able to relate to the Sadducees' misgivings and questions. Then will the resurrection actually happen? How do we know this? Can we know this for sure? Well, in this passage, Jesus continues his response by offering proof from the pages of Scripture. Verse 37, he says this, But that the dead are raised, even Moses showed in the passage about the bush, where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Now, you may not understand what he's saying here right away, but I'll explain it. The main point of this verse that Jesus is trying to make is that resurrection recalls God's covenant promises. Resurrection recalls God's covenant promises. Otherwise, it is guaranteed by God's great promises. Jesus says, but that the dead are raised. So what he's trying to do, he's seeking to prove biblically that the resurrection is real to the Sadducees. And so where does he appeal? To the same person the Sadducees just quoted from in their little story. Okay, He says this, But that the dead are raised, even Moses showed in the passage about the bush, where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. So Jesus said, remember that little story from our history about the bush? That would be referring to what we usually call Moses and the burning bush, where God called Moses to deliver his people out from slavery in Egypt and by speaking to Moses audibly out of a bush that was on fire but wasn't burning up. Very supernatural event. And God spoke to Moses through it. story can be found back in Exodus 3. And in it, God is clearly referred to, like Jesus says here, clearly referred to as, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. So you think, well, what's so significant about that? Here's what. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, at that point in time, had been dead for centuries. But God didn't say, I was the God of them. He said, I am the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Present tense. Oh, keep following here. God had made promises to the patriarchs that he would bless them. He would make them great. That their descendants would be plentiful like the stars in the sky. That they would inherit a land. And that all nations on earth would be blessed through them. And Daryl Bach explains what this means. If God is the God of Abraham and the patriarchs, then there must be a resurrection in order for them, who have been dead, in order for them to experience the promise. Jesus' point is not only that the patriarchs are alive, but they await the promise's fulfillment. If there's no resurrection, they're history. See what he's saying? So by calling God what he did, Moses was testifying to a future resurrection. Anything otherwise, and the covenant promises that God had made would have been rather meaningless to those he made the promises to. For example, imagine if I told you, I promise that one day I am going to make your great-grandkids rich. But then, tomorrow you died without being able to see any of the promise come true. How much would that promise mean to you? Maybe a little bit? Definitely not much. Right? That's so long after your death, you don't even care by that time. Okay? But Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob would, and they will, indeed see God's promises Come to pass. That's what Jesus was saying. They're going to see it. They're going to experience it. They're going to receive the blessing. 
to take heart. God has promised His people a great and glorious resurrection throughout Scripture, going all the way back. And it is impossible for God to lie. He always keeps His promises. He can do no other. The future hope for His people is rooted in His unbreakable covenant promises. In His promises, there is really, there really is proof of His resurrection. Ultimately, we still need to have faith. But that doesn't mean there aren't really good reasons to have faith. Now this should be very comforting to those of us who are experiencing suffering and death now. Some of us are grieving those who have passed away recently. Or maybe not so recently. We're still grieving. Some of us are going through sufferings that they may not, but they may end in death. Like Lazarus. Some of us are watching loved ones walk through the valley of the shadow of death. And in these times, we can rest and rely on the covenant promises of God. That we can trust Him. can trust Him that death will not be the end. That we will rise again one day. That when we put someone into the ground, we're not actually burying them, we're planting them. And that He will see us through this valley to the other side. can trust Him. Imagine that some of you might still be unconvinced. You may never be convinced. But some of you honestly wonder, how are God's promises actually proof of resurrection? How does that fall? I'll tell you how. Because God's promises are far deeper than mere promises. They are covenants firmly rooted in the very nature of God himself. Why will we be resurrected? Because this is who our God is. Okay, don't miss this. This is the final point Jesus makes, and it's a powerful one. Again, verse 37. But that the dead are raised, even Moses showed in the passage about the bush, where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Now, he is not God of the dead, but of the living. For all live to him. So, we don't worship the God of dead people. We worship the God of the living. See, resurrection is rooted in the nature of God himself. It's who he is. God is the God of life, the God who brings life, and new life naturally flows from him. So resurrection is rooted in the very nature of God himself. We may die. We will die. But we will live again one day. And why? Because our God is not the God of the dead. If he was God of the dead, think about it, then the whole human race would be pointless. And we would, people would live and then die and then cease to exist. What would be the point? But we're not pointless. We were brought to life for a reason. Because God is redeeming for himself a people to declare his praise for all eternity. We have a purpose. Rooted in the nature of God. God is the God of living, breathing human beings. Like Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Moses. And like you. Like me. Jesus says here that all live to God, which means that all life exists in relationship to the living God. Without God, there would be no life, no blood in your veins, no breath in your lungs. And because 
Because God is the God of the living and all life comes from Him, then He has power over life. And to doubt the resurrection is to actually doubt God Himself and who He is. So I encourage you today, don't doubt His power. Don't doubt His word. Don't doubt His promises. He can save us and He will save us even from death because He is the God of the living. Jesus' masterful reply once again shut up his opponents. Read this in verse 39. Then some of the scribes answered, Teacher, you have spoken well. Understatement. Teacher, you've spoken well. For they no longer dared to ask him any question. Didn't necessarily agree, but they admitted defeat. And they gave up even asking any more questions. So they didn't even dare to ask him any more questions. With the Sadducees' failure, (coughs) all the major Jewish religious groups have now failed in trapping Jesus. Priests, chief priests, the scribes, the principal men, the elders, the Pharisees, the Herodians, and now the Sadducees. And what we see is Jesus is still in control. He is still heaven's teacher, and he is still superior to all. And even when these groups would conspire to kill him shortly, it only happened because Jesus allowed it. And even death couldn't do anything to stop him. Because he is the God of the living. Let's pray. God, I pray that every single person here will experience new life in you. I yearn for that, God. Those who are still rejecting you or still ignoring you or still putting you off will be brought to their knees one day. Pray that that's today. God, you are so great. You're so loving. So powerful. May we trust you today. May we trust you in the hard times, in the times where suffering comes, and when death comes. We trust that you're still in control. Trust that you still have power over life and power over death. We love you. We worship you. Thank you for your new life. In Jesus' name. Amen.